This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns Building. Now this week saw us release our brand new clothing range. It's our spring range. And what we've done with this collection is we've tried to put together a bunch of garments that you can wear no matter what the weather. We've got a bunch of new t-shirts. These ones I really like. We've got a Berserker Spirit t-shirt and an Ulfordin Spirit t-shirt. What these are is that they've got a warrior in the middle and then behind the warrior you've got the spirit of the animal that they're embodying. So behind the Berserker you've got a bear and behind the Ulfordin you've got a wolf. Um, alongside that for those of you who like something a little bit more simple we've got just a logo t-shirt so it's our logo on the left hand side and that comes in a heather navy and a woodland heather and these t-shirts are 100% organic recycled cotton then we've got a new jogging pants which come in the men's and the women's and we've also got a hoodie so these are all in black with our logo embroidered on them again with the hoodie we're trying to keep in that theme of keeping things sustainable so that's made from 85% organic cotton and 15% uh, recycled polyester and it's um, global organic treaty certified and also fair weather foundation certified and finally I think my favorite item from this launch is we've got a brand new 100% cotton jumper now this jumper is absolutely perfect for me you can wear it on its own or you can layer it up and have a t-shirt under it and throw that on top for that little bit of extra warmth it's really comfortable it's really soft like I said, it's 100% cotton. Uh, the men's one comes in black and a beautiful olive colour. And then we do a women's one, which comes in a lovely navy colour as well. So yeah, just pop over to the website and check them out. Don't forget, you get that extra 10% discount off anything store-wide for listening to the podcast and for supporting the podcast. Just use Horns10 at checkout and you can get 10% off anything. Thanks for listening. Let's jump into the show. <laughs> Welcome to the Naughty Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company Horns Verdon, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvik. Hello. We are joined uh, this time by Sophie Draheim, uh, who is an author working on a book where you're basically like doing uh, modern skaldic poetry, as far as I understand it. Aside from that, Sophie, you have a BA uh, in Scandinavian studies from UCL with uh, a, a brief trip to Oslo. And then you also are doing uh, an MA in creative writing. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys very, very much for having me. It's kind of surreal to be here, but I'm very glad to join you all. Thank you. And it's, it's good to hear a, a good Northern accent as well. <laughs> I know you said it's a hybrid, but I'm taking it as Northern. If I if I'm being accepted by a northerner as a fellow northerner in England, then I'm very, I'm feeling very flattered. So no, it's all good by me. <laughs> even <laughs> even if it's uh, the wrong side of the Pennines and it's Lancashire, I'm still going to allow it just because I don't get many northern English people on here. Great, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> before we before we jump into the Scaldic poetry side, so there's a couple of things we want. I want to. Touch on an Aspateus. Obviously, there's been a few things discovered recently. Firstly, Mateus, before we speak about the little eagle, raven, Odin head that was found, I need to ask you, what the fuck's a birth room? Because I was scrolling through Facebook, as I do, 
getting myself into all sorts of trouble in the groups. And I saw somebody post about how their birth rune was a specific one and gave this big detailed answer about why. Right. Um, I can't come and ask you what the fuck this was. Because I yeah. feel like it's some sort of star sign modern interpretation of right. runes. Yeah, so so let's let me just um flip through a book for a second here. Um <laughs> And if anybody's got their bingo cards up then uh, or bingo place up, then um, I guess you can uh, check that one off. Because, um, like, I feel like there's... Don't tell me it's real, because I'm going to be so upset if it is. Um, no, no. Wait, Sophie, I don't know if it's something you've ever heard of before. What, a birth rune? A birth rune. And I it just feels extremely bizarre a thing. I feel it must be a modern creation. But is I, it is it like the kind of like quasi Nordic version of a star sign or like a zodiac? That's kind of what I was feeling it, it was. Um yeah. but as always I like to bring these things to Mateus so he can tell me whether the well, ones so that are obviously true. what you like what you were uh, the 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 stuff that you uh, uh, referenced for me um, is definitely like some kind of like modern uh, idea. I I don't know where they got this from, um, and and uh, like I, I I have never heard of it before, like birth runes. Um, but I just wanted to like check up on like the. Um, the main poem uh that is like the cause of of all kinds of like funky ideas about runes that would be the uh, uh poem Sigurdriva Maur um or the lay of Sigurdriva as it is called in English uh where we have this Valkyrie um who is like like listing all of these uh, different funky runes like ale runes uh helping runes um sea runes limb runes speech runes mind runes and a, fun, you know, a bunch of other stuff um and so there is in stanza nine uh, she says helping runes you must know if you want to assist and release children from women they shall be cut on the palms and clasped uh, on the joints and then the seer asked for help um so this is not this is not a birth runes as such that's like runes uh associated with the idea of like healing right mm -hmm. so so Something like a rune to help give birth yeah no that's that's the whole thing is it's not actually it's not the the person giving birth or the the, the person being birthed um it's Born. the born there you go <laughs> hey i'm foreign um <laughs> it's it's the it's the it's the uh the, the midwife basically who's who's like using these runes on their hands so that's like an entirely different thing but i could see how that could somehow end up as like an interpretation of like birth runes that has something to do with like a rune that is like assigned to the child in like some kind of new age modern interpretation um so, like, yeah, it's something that people have come up with, pulled out of their asses. But we could, you know, 
authenticate the idea of, uh, based off of that poem, I think, to an extent, if we really want to make that stretch. Um, so yeah, but if somebody says, hey, my birth room was this and that, then they are basically just um, interpreting runes in context of like astrology or something. Mm -hmm. that, so. That's what it seemed. It seemed like it was a day that you were born, you got a certain rune, maybe. I mean, I could, I could definitely see that being a thing nowadays. Like you, you sort of like you, you do runic divination once the child has been born, and then it gets like a specific rune. There's a lot of uh, um, creative thinking that has to go into, you know, mm -hmm. using runes in that way. But uh, they get used for a lot of funky stuff nowadays. So why the hell not? Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And the second, the second thing I want to ask you before we, we we start properly is the little figurehead that has been found in Zealand at the time of us recording. This, I think it was found yesterday. Uh, probably be a couple of weeks old by the time this gets released. So we'll talk about where just no whatever you basically just educate me on it. I guess <laughs> I think Sophie, you, you said you haven't seen it either. So yeah, so this was found. What do you say yesterday? Yeah, um, with I think it's about twenty four hours old. Uh, metal detector find, find in in Denmark, Zealand, um, and what we're seeing is a little male head. Um, he has a very distinct beard, and mm -hmm. um, and so the interesting thing is that uh, he's got um, like what do you call that thing? Like a a, a mohawk kind of thing going on um that mm. turns into a bird's head now the interesting thing is that he doesn't have it doesn't look like he's wearing a helmet uh this figure uh it actually looks like it's 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 like his hair or something i'm not entirely mm -hmm. sure um, like a, it, um it's like a little elvis presley like yeah quiff that's like turning into a bird's head and then of course now the conversation is is that a raven's head or is it a eagle head Mm -hmm. um and uh, uh, conversations are also of course circling around is this odin is it uh not odin um what are we dealing with one of the basic things you can say about it is that it, this is of course a uh, uh a, a a depiction of a male head that falls in line with what we know from vendel era um the Swedes call it the Vendel era. The rest of us call it the migration era. Um, so that so period. Wait, yeah. I was about to ask that. What what period is that? Well, that's like from you know uh, four five hundreds into the seven uh, the, the the early seven hundreds uh, at the very latest uh, is where we see this uh, um, common Nordic and northern european culture that also you know the, the anglo-saxons definitely are part of like we we talked about this in context of the sutton who uh, when we had uh, martin carver uh, on the sutton who burials mm -hmm. um the it, like a lot of the uh, art that we see in the sutton who burial is very similar to the style that you see in the vendel graves in sweden hence the the use of the word vendel era 
um, and and this is a a common sort of like warrior ruler culture uh, that is emerging in the 500s in 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 northern Europe, uh, tied specifically to local magnates in in the Scandinavian era uh, area in general, um, but definitely with like ties to uh, the Franks and the Goths and um, and. Uh, and and a lot of inspiration from these emerging feudal societies in uh, uh, Western Europe at the time. Um, so what can we say about it? Well, it falls in line with the, the, the warrior ideology that seems attached to a mythological figure like Odin. Um, and then that makes a lot of people interpret these birds, uh, bird heads as ravens because um sort of like the most popular version of odin is, is like this god that hangs out with a couple of ravens on his shoulders even though that's like a really far stretched interpretation that snutter sturdison comes up with in the 1220s based off of a very vague reference in the poem grimness sayings so uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily i feel like sophie must agree with it because she was smiling then <laughs> Well, she probably knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, it, it's not like Odin is not associated with ravens. It's just that there's, you know, the idea that Odin and ravens go hand in hand is perhaps blown a, blown a little out of proportion. Mm-hmm. And 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 Odin as a figure, uh, um, as this like mythological figure, is also associated with eagles. Um, in 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 different ways, mm-hmm. um, like one of one of his n- names is Arnahöfti, which literally means uh, uh, eagle head. So there's that, and and so um, of course the the big the big thing is like where do these uh, northern northwestern Europeans uh, in the time period uh, get these ideas from? Like what is it that inspires their um, consistent imagery um, associated with these birds of prey, probably eagles, um, maybe ravens, but more probably eagles. And that's, of course, the answer is Imperial Rome, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's like that's that's the um, that's what we have seen in um, um, in in. Like so much imagery in in in, in Imperial Rome, uh, basically like uh, just precipitating north, and in different ways, inspiring and creating new cultural forms in Northern Europe. The Bracteates are a great example. I've ranted about those before. These like you know golden medallions that have all kinds of like funky imagery on them in the. In the, the Germanic context and in the Roman context, we have more like naturalistic imagery. You can actually see what's on them. These were like medallions that the Roman legions uh, would would wear. The Germanics, they look at them and then they go, oh, "That's really cool. Um, let's copy that." And then they use their own like funky, creative, um, very sort of like almost like trips. Acid trips, Pablo Picasso kind of like style uh, in in the imagery that they put on them, and then a bunch of runes and and like magic words that we have very little understanding of today. So yeah, um, that's uh, I guess what we can say about that in, in general. Of course, there's a lot of 
you know, it has to go through the whole um, processing of like specialists looking at it and, mm -hmm. and telling us what, what they think. Um, like one thing I, I would say is that I, I feel like it, it gets a little weird sometimes when uh, both scholars and lay folk want to be like, like really obsess about the species of bird that we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> bird yeah. of prey just be fine, if you ask me, because we don't always really have the capacity to actually, you know, determine is it, mm -hmm. is it also like oh yeah sure eagle but what kind of eagle there's several kinds of eagles guys come on like let's get real specific then <laughs> so if we were, now you've now you've seen it do you have any opinions on what you think it might be whether it's i guess you can't really tell whether it's an eagle or a raven or or what i mean like my as we call it in britain like twitcher skills like my bird identifying abilities are little to none so i would have no idea in a million worlds what on earth that is but no. pencil eraser springs to mind more than like a specific type <laughs> of bird for me as well daniel that helps so <laughs> um yeah. Mateus, is it likely that i mean i don't know how many eagles how many eagles do you get in northern europe plenty of eagles so i was wondering whether maybe change from eagles to ravens kind of geographically oh. where you were depending on what birds you saw, no, no, so you just kind of made it fit. You, there, there are eagles all over the place in uh, in northern Europe. Like Denmark still has eagles today. Um, so, so yeah, the, the eagle is uh, would have been a well known bird to these people, and mm -hmm. they would definitely have. As I mean, they're, you go to Norse mythology and and read uh, uh, the myths, and there are plenty of eagles there too. There is a whole like actually like quite an interesting sort of like uh deep-rooted complex of eagle mythology mm -hmm. in 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 nordic mythology in general so so it makes perfect sense that it would be an eagle if you ask me okay so um, why but it also could make perfect sense that it would be a raven actually <laughs> like there there are plenty of there's plenty of like raven mythology in there as well mm -hmm. so why um, the big obsession with ravens in nordic mythology then or it, seem, or it seems to like a layperson like me, I'm sure there is some eagles in there. But it seems like there's a lot of emphasis on ravens. We, we have a couple of, you know, uh, poetic examples where ravens are specifically mentioned um, and addressed um, as, as like a... As sort of like the the primary mythological uh, uh, and also death associated uh, creature, right? Um, uh, because of warrior mythology and warrior uh, ideology in different ways, the the raven uh, symbolizes that animal or is that animal that basically shows up and starts picking at your guts when you're lying there dead at the uh, battlefield right mm -hmm. um and that is that is an image that was very popular in skaldic poetry and nordic mythology in general we see the raven then showing up as sort of like a harbinger of death that um, becomes a very stable element later in the saga literature and in folk uh, uh, folklore in general as well so so the raven is part of like a very very like sort of big um 
mythological complex in, in, in Scandinavia and Northern Europe in general. The one thing that came to mind for just from like a literary perspective is that eagles and ravens are both quite prevalent in um, sort of poetic like kenning terms. You have like kennings for, you know, war is like feeding the eagle is specifically referring to it as a bird of prey that's going to come and feast on corpses. But you also have, I think it is, I'm, I might be corrected on this, but I think there's one which is like raven's wine or like something that the raven is going to feed on. So there's quite an equal balance in what I've seen in kennings for eagles and ravens. So like, I think they're both fairly prevalent as like har- harbingers of war in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and also falcons yeah. and, and hawks, right? Like it's, it's like this, yeah. it's sort of like a, a general like concept of like a bird of prey or a bird that will feast on the dead in, in one way or another. They're mm-hmm. generally used, right, in these images of of war. Um, yeah. I think one of the reasons that the Raven in particular is, um, is like, you know, sort of like etched into the minds of like the lay person when it comes to this is that Odin is always depicted with those two fucking ravens for some reason. And I'm cursing because it, it's kind of annoying me a little bit because it's so obviously a construction that's not as as and makes in the 1200s. It doesn't mean that he's not associated with ravens, but it's just not that, you know, two parrots kind of like uh, I'm Jack Sparrow uh, situation that we're dealing with here. <laughs> it's something else. <laughs> we also have Harald's Kaidi, right? Um, the eulogy to uh, uh, Harold um, uh, Finehair, where it, it like it begins with a conversation between a Valkyrie and a Raven. Um, so that's like a very sort of distinct and well used image as well. Um, uh, so yeah, that's that's probably why the Raven is so popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I, uh, as as I was going to say in context of like. Scandinavian folk uh, lore in general, like later on in the medieval period and after the medieval period, is that the eagle stops being um, particularly active um, in that sense. It, it, it stops being relevant in in folk lore and folk tales and folk mythology in general. Whereas the raven, like, is like a consistent image, and I think mm-hmm. also in, in in the English area too. And in Scotland and so on, if um, if I am not mistaken, please. You, I mean, I, I can't speak for anywhere else, but you see a lot of ravens. You don't see many eagles, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, that I imagine that's probably p- plays a part to it. Because if there's ever anything dead, there's always a fucking raven flying above it. That's so, a good point, actually. <laughs> it's really you. You write about what you know. Um, mm-hmm. Just going back to what you, what you just said, Sophie. I had a, an interesting thought. It's probably the only one that comes up in my mind. Um, do you think they ever just used a particular bird because the word rhymed easier, especially when it comes to like scaldic stuff? Because at the end of the day, they are humans. And I guess it would be no different to a poet today. They would just pick a word. They're like, oh, that fits. I'm just going to go with that. And I imagine that must have been the same. I mean, in my opinion, and it is entirely my opinion, absolutely, because as I was like ranting uh, a little bit about earlier, if you have such strict rules to stick to in meters such as Drotkvart or uh, Runhent or other like skaldic meters, which have very specific rules, 
you could be really inspired one day. You could see a raven descending on a corpse and you're like, I have to incorporate that into my poetry later as a skull. And you're just sitting there and you're mapping out exactly how many syllables per line that you can actually use and how many half rhymes or full rhymes or alliteration. And if eagle is going to somehow fit the bill better than raven, I personally... (laughs) yeah exactly if I was in that position I would have no problem in changing my story just because is it worth (laughs) me changing the rest of my skaldic composition to fit this one word Mm because it is already so hard to like get everything to match up Mm -hmm. that that maybe I'm maybe I would just be a lazy skald I don't know maybe there would be skalds who would like labor to like describe things exactly as they see them but in my opinion you would definitely bend what you were trying to yeah. say just to fit into those really anal pedantic you know mm-hmm. rules that you have in skaldic poetry so haiku from yeah. hell <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> yep <laughs> so before we go into the, the, the skaldic poetry the last thing i want to say on the uh, little figure is that i hope that it turns out to be odin because he's got both his eyes. And I'm going to find that fucker that argued with me about Odin, about having a, a symbol of Odin with two eyes. I'm going to find him and I'm going to send him it. So, because I'm a vengeful bastard. I am. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've missed some huge drama here where you were attacked. Or... No, no, no. I had uh, a little conversation <laughs> with somebody about how Odin could be depicted with two eyes and he got upset with me. So, but then Mateus embarrassed me by telling everybody that there is no, there is no depiction of Odin with two eyes. So I've been well, waiting for one. I've been waiting the, for one. I mean, the, the the thing is that we don't have much to go by when it comes mm-hmm. to these depictions from like the Viking Age or before, because I mean they don't come with name text. So all we can do is that we can we can look at the features of this particular. Uh, whatever it is that's being depicted, right? Mm-hmm. And then we can uh, relate those features to what we know from, you know, other cultural material, and that would usually be the written material that we have from medieval Iceland, right? Mm-hmm. And then we always run into that uh, annoying uh, situation of like a time gap of several hundred years between when that particular thing was u- used and uh, produced and used, and then you know when stuff was written down. And that's that's always the back and forth. Um, you know, a, a hardcore positivist would say that well, you can't do that. You can't use texts that were written down uh, two thousand kilometers away from the the place of finding something. You know, several hundred years after that that thing was produced, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and the problem with that is, of course, it's going to make for really boring Scandinavian archaeology. Um, uh, from that time period um but but it is to an extent you know also a valid argument so i mean when it comes to like odin with uh, with one or two eyes um we really have to consider how important is it that he only has one eye um and it's, it's important to me that he has two <laughs> <laughs> the thing is <laughs> The thing is that 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 there is like there's not a lot of literary evidence for him just having one eye. There's also not a lot of literary evidence for him having two eyes. Like it doesn't look like it's that fucking important in the stories. 
It's, again, this is no. it's like the Ravens. Just two, just two idiots on Facebook who made it important. <laughs> and a bunch of other idiots out there um, like in different contexts. Also, you know, scholarly idiots. Uh, so don't worry about it. Like, this is something that you can also <laughs> find, like, long-ass debates about at some conference somewhere, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So <laughs> no, we, we can all just agree that that little figure is holding with two eyes and we can move on, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to uh, Skaldic poetry, because I think we've, we've touched on it before a little bit. I still don't think I'm 100% clear on what it actually is. So Sophie, do you want to give us a little rundown of what Skaldic poetry is? Well, I can attempt to, but um, having come from a quite generalist undergraduate degree in Scandinavian studies. I'm sort of only more focusing on the literary side with like skaldic poetry now at a master's level in creative writing. So I will probably be fresh to this and make blunders and whatever, but as I understand it, there's a kind of, there's a lot of debate within skaldic poetry about, you know, things such as like whether music was involved, which I know you guys have discussed before. And as I understand it, there's no material evidence to say yes and there's none to say no. So like, who are we to assume yes or no on that? Like it's completely open to history and we're not sure. But there's, um, as I've learned about it, I assume that a lot of like Eddic poetry is kind of, has been left anonymous. We're not exactly sure with the Eddic poetry who has composed it, but Skaldic poetry, it was very about uh, courtly poetry and composing you know, for kings and chieftains. So it would be a thing of renown to be like a famous skald who was kind of composing very important poetry to commemorate the war deeds or like the exploits of a king or a chieftain. And um, one of the most like prevalent meters there is, is um, I'm probably saying it completely wrong as well, but Brotkvart, as I have read it before, uh, kind of translates to like suitable for the court, like the courtly meter, this was what would be the meter that was used to compose poetry for chieftains and kings quite often. And um, this all plays into the kind of reciprocal nature between liege lords and retainers, you know, retainers who would be wanting to compose poetry for their lords and they would perhaps receive favour in return in, you know, gifts or other kind of favours from their lord and things like that. So it was very important in an oral tradition for chieftains and kings to be recorded in poetry that might be passed around as opposed to any kind of physical evidence of their exploits you know mm -hmm. if we're ignoring the whole runestone kind of side of it which is quite limited in its own way in my perspective so um but yeah there are there are several different meters within skaldic poetry that were used but like that's quite a good example of one that was um very complicated and required a lot of mental dexterity to master like the specific features and a certain number of syllables and alliterations and rhymes that were required and you know you would have to be very well practiced at it to kind of earn fame as a skull mm -hmm. and um if you were rubbish and you got the wrong number of syllables and you were you know performing it in a courtly setting then i'm sure you would be booed out just like any kind of modern performer and you know in my opinion, but um, yeah, so it was quite a difficult thing to achieve, I would say, to be like a renowned skald in a specific meter or whatever, as a summary, in my opinion, but yeah. Feels like they were the rock stars 
of the Slovakian yeah. age. <laughs> they definitely yeah. were. Um, and the slam poets. The slam poets, because that was also part of it, right? They, they would actually compose poetry to fuck with each other. And it's like, <laughs> look at this asshole over here, that kind of stuff. And and some of them would get uh, uh, by names that uh, also hinted at them being bad skulls, like Avin der Skaldespitlip, which, you know, just means shitty skull. <laughs> So oh, that imagine, just... that, imagine getting that nickname. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, that's one you've got to try and shake, isn't it? <laughs> but it's also there is so it, there, there's a couple of things that are that are interesting also about scaldic poetry in terms of like how we think about it today. It's very closely associated with, as as, as Sophie was pointing out, um, kings and and chieftains and so on, and and the eulogies um, attributed to them. But I mean, some of the um, uh, some of the uh, the oldest mythology that we also have, presumably at least, because it's attributed to certain skulls, um, is is uh, composed by skulls as well, like Hostlung uh, as as a as a as a so-called skaldic poem, though not in Trotkvate meter, right? So we're dealing with uh, a, a, a somewhat of like a genre confusion in different ways. Um, Thorstraupa is another one, right? Um, so, so, so we have like these like very old sources to Nordic mythology in skaldic sources as well, and um, and the question is like where where does skaldic poetry begin, and where does Eddic poetry end? Uh, as I have surely said before, Eddic poetry is also like five or six or seven different kinds of meter as well. It's not just one thing. And and what we what's basically the, have, yeah. What's the difference between Eddic poetry and Skaldic poetry? The, the the meter in which it is composed and also quite often. What's uh, a meter? Yeah, that's when. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> You have a bunch of you have a bunch of stressed and unstressed syllables and <laughs> alliteration. What's, what's and... a stressed syllable? <laughs> oh fuck! <laughs> so when you compose something, I'm not going to be the only person. I know, this. I know, I know that that's fair. Um, okay, so when you compose poetry, right? You set it up in a repeating structure right that's that's clear mm -hmm. so, yeah. so for instance the type of poetry that we in the modern western world are mostly familiar with is like uh poetry that has end rhymes mm -hmm. so that, um, that's what i'm most familiar with yes that was the stuff that you were trying to compose before and think, thinking like what rhymes with podcast <laughs> right oh, yeah. and <laughs> and so um so different types of poetry will have different rules for uh, how you make rhymes in mm -hmm. rhymes, for instance. And um, uh, uh, so that will be the meter, right? The meter will be the rules for how you make rhymes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But uh, so could you say rules? Poetry, in a sense, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> But it's more like it's a little more complicated than simply just like saying uh, mm -hmm. rules, right? Because then we have different 
different types of rules and we also have uh, different um, what is it, like logics for, for how you create the rules. So when it comes to this Nordic type of poetry and Germanic poetry in general, what um, is the main uh, rule in, or the main guiding principle in creating rules is the alliteration, right? So you, you don't make rhyming in the same way as we're familiar with in modern art forms. You make uh, rhyming based off of alliteration instead. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And that's that's where stressed and unstressed <laughs> syllables and all that crap comes into play. Um, and so you get these many different types of uh, of, of poetry actually, because we have well identified in in what we call Eddic poetry. We identified at least six different ways of creating these rules. Right. As far as I remember, we have one of the most primary ones is like Fortnidislag, which means something like the meter of ancient sayings or ancient words. Mm -hmm. And that one, that would be like the prophecy of the seeress, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, let's see. So uh, what is it? Let's let's just take it. So um stanza three of, of the prophecy of the series. How does that go? It goes Aur was aldar, da er imibiti, varasander nise niswala unni. Your fans gave an optimin. Uh kingunga engraswerki or something like that, right? So you can hear that the, the alliteration here is on the consonants and instead of like if these end rhymes that have to like match up with one another. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Sounds complicated. It is sounds complicated. Really, sounds really <laughs> difficult to do. Yes. And then you know what these bastards did? And then they created Drotkvate as an entirely different, more, even more complicated type of poetry later on. Right? Okay. <laughs> and that's what Sophie is working with. <laughs> It sounds horrendous. The, the thing, the thing. I think you're being very generous in saying that I'm working with it. I sort of sat down very optimistic because I was having a joke around, like on the Scandinavian studies BA I was doing. We had some kind of like banter going on about what would you, what like profession would you most likely be able to survive and thrive in during, you know, Viking Age or prior. And I have no idea because I have little to no, you know, practical survival skills, but I can sort of talk out my ass with uh, poetry and stories sometimes. So I was like, maybe if I was a scald, I, I might get by. And uh, so I sort of had this kind of like very can-do attitude to it. And then I sat down with Rockford and the rules set out in front of me, for want of a better word. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Absolutely fine. And I wanted to cry within about five or ten minutes and rip up the paper in front of me, which I'm sure was quite a familiar feeling to scalds back in the day as well. Mm -hmm. People just getting so frustrated with it because it feels very limiting. But the result, if it's done well, is beautiful. But when you're trying to learn how to do it in an unfamiliar way, it just feels like unnecessary constrictions on what you are trying to express. It's very frustrating mm -hmm. and I haven't really done that much in it but I'm hoping that I will 
learn a bit of patience in my life and try again in future and actually do a bit better next time. <laughs> so, yeah. Is it is it something that's mainly adapted to older languages and just doesn't suit modern English very well? Or that's is, <laughs> that's is my that... excuse. That's my excuse. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> English. It just doesn't work with English. English is too ugly a language compared to the beautiful, you know, long syllable words of kind of old Icelandic or Norse languages. But I'm sure, I mean, I, I'm a big, one of my idols is uh, Ian Crockett. He's a um, Scottish poet. And I think he has a PhD in Scandinavian studies or something from Aberdeen University. And he's like done a lot of translations of like Orkneyinga saga and like a lot of the poetry of uh, the sagas. And he he just he just understands it. He just gets it. And he's written an entire poetry anthology, which I'm very jealous of, called Skald, uh, Sword and Sea Cloud. And he he basically the entire thing is what I want to do in my own way. It's all in different meters derived from like Throdkvite and other types like Eddick meters and scholar meters and it works for him but it doesn't work for me normally when I do it so <laughs> he's very he's very very good but I mean if you look at the language he's using he's having to pair words that you would never in a million years put together in a modern context so it's a very different archaic take on language that I think we're kind of in a way Dan we're kind of grown away from but like I'm sure if you spent enough time like Ian has like probably leafing through a thesaurus and really thinking about it, you would actually manage mm-hmm. to make something beautiful. But it doesn't come so naturally now, perhaps, because re- one reason or another. So, yeah. My, yeah. my biggest problem with all that stuff is that I couldn't care less about rules in general. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, well, fuck it. <laughs> same. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem is same. It, it's kind of like a... Uh, it's kind of like a challenge thing. It, I, I don't really care for the rules, but it, it seems like it would be very fulfilling to master something that has in the past been mastered. And when mm-hmm. I can't, I feel I feel very frustrated. And then I sort of start criticizing, oh, well, the rules are stupid anyway, and start yeah. basically ba- bashing oh, on everything I bashing oh, on everything I've been studying. <laughs> yeah, been bashing on everything I've been studying for years, which is very self-destructive. So that's kind it's of probably, point in that either. <laughs> I imagine it's probably one of those things that once it clicks, it clicks and you kind of just see it and get it and go from there. But until that moment, it just feels like you're bashing your head against a wall. Yeah. Absolutely. In my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And I never I never plan on finding out. I mean, the, <laughs> this is also this is one of the reasons that it can be incredibly difficult to translate uh, Scaldic poetry, obviously, but also the other types of poetry from um, medieval Iceland and uh, and, uh, and that Viking Age past and all that stuff, uh, because you know it, there will always you will always have to like give up some some aspect of the original text that you're working with when you're translating it. Um, uh, that's also why we often see like sort of more weird archaicisms in 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 translations of like Eddic poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they get weirdly archaic because sometimes archaic English just works better for it in 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 some translators' opinions at least. I imagine you get a lot of mistranslations as well because even if I read modern poetry 
there, there's some stuff in there that means one thing. And I look at it in English and I understand English quite a bit. And I'm like, you know, that's a stretch for that to mean that. But obviously it fits within within the poem. So they've put it in there. And I imagine that would have been the same for back there. So when you're then trying to translate from this dead language to to now, that makes it even more difficult to understand what it is because it might be quite a stretch and off topic then, let alone now. Yeah, I mean, for me, when you talk about that, like that kind of brings to mind the whole subject of kennings, which I'm quite a nerd for and I find very interesting. So like... Uh, What's a kenning? Yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was mentally stealing myself. I guess the best way of describing it is kind of like a... Uh, it's a metaphor, trying to express the meaning of something through a compound, like a combination of two different words that are very reliant on cultural context sometimes. So something, for instance, like blood, a kenning for blood is battle sweat. That's not really that hard to figure out for us, okay. right? Like we can, that, that's not too difficult for us, but there might be something like Mimir's lip streams, meaning poetry, which is very reliant on your knowledge of Nordic mm-hmm. myths and things like that, and your understanding of Mimir and kind of the origins of the mead of poetry. And Jim, I said, Jim in the chat has just said it's like Cockney rhyming slang, which I, <laughs> from what you said, I feel like that fits quite well. I think so, because you always feel really. I don't know, like FOMO, like you're missing out when people are speaking it around you and you've got no idea what they're referring to. It's like mm-hmm. an in-joke that you're mm-hmm. missing out on, but worse. And I mean, I, I've read some things conflicting, but, the, you know, there's some kind of opinions that perhaps like the superfluous use of like lots and lots of kennings in poetry, like skaldic poetry, might have been a kind of, distinguishing thing of like you had to be a certain amount of culturally aware and perhaps aristocratic in order to be like aware of the kind of literary history that's behind it in order to be able to actually write or compose these poems in ways that fit in with cultural context if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense so um but I mean I I love them and when I'm writing kind of like anything that's a bit more fantasy my own kind of fiction I have a great deal of fun making up my own kennings that fit in with the world I'm building mm-hmm. but you could do the same for like modern day London or England things that are culturally relevant to a certain place or a certain location and time but um mm-hmm. yeah yeah no, I think I get it it's like <laughs> a way of describing something without actually saying it but Yes, that's that's bit. way better than me rambling on for the last five minutes. That basically <laughs> no, sums right. it up. Actually, yeah. actually <laughs> I, I would have to say I would have to modify that and, and and say it's actually a way of describing something by describing a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> Mateus, really, yeah. exactly. I mean that I feel like that must be incredibly difficult for people to then translate the the old texts of you know, poems mm-hmm. into English now, and you must get sort of different answers depending on who reads it, who yeah, uh, who translates you, you can, it. You can definitely get um, well. So, 
so there's a couple of things when it comes to, uh, to especially like the kenning uh in in scaldic poetry that that are a little little problematic um okay so first of all the kenning in scaldic poetry are the reason we have nordic mythology like snorri sturluson wrote his book etta because he wanted people to be able to decipher these kenning in scaldic poetry because they're so often based on nordic mythology right because it's an old cultural language Mm-hmm. So, so that's the first thing to keep in mind that 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 because of this these weird circumlocutions that people came up with, uh, that's why we still know Nordic mythology today because there was an Einstein and said like this is still relevant knowledge uh, even though we converted to Christianity and all that stuff. Um, so that's the that's the first uh, first thing to keep in mind here. Um, the the bulk of Nordic mythology is just lists of of like. Oh, you can you can call gold uh, Freya's tears, or you can call gold the mouthful of uh, what is Ivaldi's sons, or something like that. Um, and then then you get like these weird random stories about why you can do that. Um, so so that's really what Snorri Sturluson is writing down back in the twelve twenties. Uh, um, but so so that's like one person's. Uh, interpretation right and yeah sure he was very learned in that style he knew what he was doing most of the time but sometimes we do run into interpretive issues in different ways and especially when you look at what contemporary or near contemporary scholars have been doing with uh, skaldic poetry as well quite often so like um if you take Finno Jonsson's uh, big dictionary of uh all right uh, what is <laughs> what uh, you were going to say then <laughs> what <laughs> um, <laughs> no, see, it's all right don't you worry about it everybody listening will have got that okay so Finno Jonsson right he wrote Norsk Islandsk um, the big dictionary on this subject. I have it right here, and uh, you've um, got a, you've got a way of pronouncing dictionary. <laughs> it's really cracking me up. I don't really understand what's going on. You, em- you, you emphasize the dick in dictionary <laughs> quite, quite well, and when especially when you put it with the word big before it. it uh, <laughs> It sounds, it sounds well, it is. It is a big dictionary. <laughs> Got this it. is just one volume of it. Um, anyway. I mean, I thought you were just flattering the the author. <laughs> um, I mean, you never know. Uh, I, hey, he... who knows? <laughs> so, moving on from ancient scholars' dicks to uh, the subject at hand. Um, so, so, so what he did is that he, of course, compiled a dictionary on all of this stuff. And quite often what you're seeing is that uh, like the entries, you will have, you know, a reference to, say, a giant or something like this. Uh, and then our good friend just basically says, oh, that's a giant. Um, except, you know, you could make an argument for actually in the particular kenning interpreting the giant's name and the context for that giant in the, uh, in, in, in the whole uh, context of the kenning itself, and then ask yourself, what kind of meaning is that kenning actually creating in that 
particular scenario right there. And then it starts getting really interesting because then uh, you can get some funky stuff. Um, and that's when we have basically these circumlocutions are like un basically unveiling an entire like world of, of, of imagination as well. So what we're basically dealing with here are like multiple layers of interpretation. Like the top layer is like, oh, that kenning right there just means giant. But then you ask yourself like all these components, there can be like four components of a kenning sometimes. What do they actually tell you about that giant and about that scene and about that situation and of itself? And then you get deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's one of the things that I really love to do with uh, this material and myself. So that's my long rant about that. Um, and I forgot where we came from anyway. <laughs> um, so we came, we came <laughs> from the difficulties of translating the kennings. Exactly. So then you ask yourself, if we're dealing with these multiple layers of interpretation, right, and meaning that can be, and like one of the best examples of like several layers of meaning in uh, skaldic poetry and kennings is um, that little uh, quote unquote praise uh, stanza uh, or two, I think it is, uh, that uh, Scotlickinson composes to the English king. Um, Elfred, Ethelred, Ethelred, I think it is in in Aeon Saga, because what he does is yeah. that like he's the, he's sitting there. Aed is pissed off because his brother has just died in battle, and he's mad at the king. The king knows this, so the king hands him a golden ring as sort of like a, a cheer up, buddy, uh, on the tip of his spear. No sword, yeah, his tip of his sword. Then he takes it and then he composes this little thank you note, which is basically also a fuck you note. Um, because he's he's literally like he's using all of this imagery um that that basically calls like the king a, a warmonger, right? So so you can see how there are different levels here. The king, who doesn't really understand what skaldic poetry is, just thinks it's like a thank you. Um, but uh, everybody else who's there who does understand scholarly poetry um, basically also understands that Aid is really pissed off and he thinks the king is just a usurper and a warmonger. Okay? I feel like I'd be like the king in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that would be me. I'd be like, oh, thank you. <laughs> so, one thing I wanted to ask, um, would there have been female scolds? Is that something we know of, or would it have been like most things back then, just typically male and boring? <laughs> do you want me to answer that, or do, do you want to take it, Sophie? Sophie? I'm going to hand this over to the man in the conversation as, <laughs> oh, befits, shit. <laughs> as befits the conversation, because I actually am not that familiar. I've heard, yeah, I'll, I'll hand this one over because I am not an expert on it. Ironically, but yeah. <laughs> I I think I think there are a couple of references to female skulls, yeah. I'm not entirely sure, but I think there are like there's like a handful. And okay. um I know that there are scholars who have written on this subject and I know that I've read them their their um articles on it, but 
it's like more than 10 years ago, <laughs> unfortunately. So I, I can't remember exactly how, um, how the argument goes, but I think there is the assumption that there, there was a uh, portion of skulls that were uh, women. Um, you also always have to take into account, of course, that the material that we have available to us is the tip of the iceberg, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, there is so much that is lost. Like one thing is uh, just when you look at it in terms of regions, most of the skaldic poetry that we have is is focused on Western Norway, a little bit of North Central Norway, and preserved in Iceland, right? And then, of course, also Iceland is, is a theme, uh, or Icelanders. But we know for a fact that, you know, the Swedes and the Danes had skulls way into the 1200s as well. And so the, there must have been a, a tradition that was like very focused on, say, like, for instance, the Swedish area um, mm -hmm. and the Swedish kings as well, in a much more intense way than what we see in the material that we have available to us. We also know that there were skulls in Scotland and uh, the English courts, and there must have been much more material focused on that area as well. So, so, so much is lost, and we we just really can't say. Um, but it's it 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 is it's very possible that there there was a much more vibrant living tradition than, than what we're seeing in the, the available mm -hmm. material, right? Just a quick thing I was wondering if um, Matthias knew anything about, because I've heard kind of vague discussions about, um, <clears throat> is it Mansonger? The kind of like love poetry that was kind of the version of like old Icelandic or Scaldic poetry that was dedicated to like love poems, erotic poems uh, in you know, for courting women and things. As I understood it, but I might be completely wrong on this, I've heard that it was quite like a, um, quite a frowned upon form of like courtship and poetry because it was often intrusive on like prearranged marriages and things like that. I was just wondering if there was anything you could enlighten on that because I'm quite unfamiliar with the subject, but I found it pretty interesting when I skimmed the surface before um right. but <laughs> so one <of> the, <laughs> if you know <laughs> one of the things I, I like the, the disclaimer on on all of this stuff is always these attitudes to art culture rocks everything that we that we talk about right they're always they're always uh, written down and expressed in Iceland so that's a specific, you know, cultural context. And this is something I, I feel um, scholarship in general ignores a little too much, that Iceland in the Viking Age and the medieval period is a very, very different society from the rest. Like it's actually incredibly distinct in so many ways. Um, one of the ways is that they, they seem to generally have a lack of females in Iceland, which means that that the men are incredibly competitive. Like, just think about that for a second. What kind of society does that create, right? And just, I'm just saying here that there, there's something to that in and of itself. Do you want an answer to that? Or... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I imagine a shitty one. Yeah, yeah. right. 
um, <laughs> as as Matt is commenting in the chat, ook, ook, ook. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good description of how I imagine it would go. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so especially when it comes to these things of like love and how you express that. Uh, how you make unions of various kinds, love-based or basically just like uh, some sort of like utilitarian uh, arranged marriage situation and all that stuff. That might be very distinctly Icelandic. Just keep that in mind, right? So so we, we can't say much about like what was this like in Viking Age Norway or Viking Age Sweden or Viking Age Denmark in the same way because we just don't have available sources in the same way. We have the rune stones that can give us some insight, but not a lot of insight, right? And especially not a lot of insight in terms of like was arranged marriages, for instance, the standard. Was arranged marriages uh, perhaps something that the upper class cared about, but maybe the rest of society didn't? Um, and when we look at the medieval laws, we actually kind of get the sense that, yeah, arranged marriages was a thing for the upper class and not so much for the rest. Um, they yeah, it seems th- like it would make sense, though. Yeah, because like the upper class is focused on, on, on you know, basically... And getting more money. Yeah, exactly. Keeping themselves rich. Yes, you can't exactly. have your You can't have your daughter marrying a peasant. Yeah. So no matter how big his dictionary is. <laughs> <laughs> so that tells me then, right, that if if that's the situation that we have, then perhaps Mansungrud, um, love poetry and so on, was could have been much more uh, prevalent. It's sort of like in the broad population. Um and maybe yeah, it was scoffed on as uh, and and uh and considered annoying or intrusive uh, by these uh, so-called important people um, because it was like fucking with their plants. But maybe this was a very common way that the the quote-unquote commoners would court each other. So are we we talking about just love poems? Mm -hmm. That's how very Viking. (laughs) Like... Sorry, we should no, never. No, no, no. No, I want to know more about it. I'm glad you did. So, <laughs> it's not very Viking. Well, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so, so what? It's just a case of writing a nice little poem for somebody. Is it? Is it a case of more like an appreciation of love already established, or is it pretty much for the purpose of new love interests? Um, it, it's the whole range, right? It's it's also like romantic love, uh, all the way to uh, just you know carnal lust of various okay. kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's you know what's really interesting to see is of course that we have like we have stories that in so many weird ways in, include very raunchy scenes and. And like basically sort of like locker room talk kind of stuff too. I mean, um So do we have it. do we have a Vikings 50 Shade of Grey? That's all I want to know. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> do we do we really? I think we have a Vikings hustler. I mean okay. 
<laughs> or like so, something something even like even more um, like Bosa Saga is an example of something that goes that gets like pretty pornographic um and we talked a little bit about this when we had Kais on um mm-hmm. that's that saga where uh, the hero sees two giants wrestling and it's a male and a female and then he also spots that her the the, the female giant's genitalia is hanging down from under her skirt um and that's like yeah. described <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so that's that's a thing um okay i just didn't expect firstly this episode to go this direction and secondly for this to even exist i mean like i i, I think i was kind of I don't, is it Cormac's saga where he's very infatuated with a Steingerler, Steingerler, mm-hmm. the woman, and it's all it's all very like airy fairy romantic, like Romeo Juliet style. Mm-hmm. And then you, that's kind of the angle I was going in at, not the kind of giant woman's drooping genitalia, but you know, okay. either way, like it's interesting. It's. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, exactly right. We we have we spend the whole range. Mm-hmm. So with these, just yep. <laughs> with these composed to be said face to face or publicly, or do we not know? Is it like a one-on-one kind of romantic thing, or did you profess your love in front of everybody and let this this lovely poem go that you'd written? Hey, so I took it to the giant Gentilia. Uh, now I'm gonna hand this one over to Sophie. <laughs> no, but th- this is the whole this is the whole problem, is that this is why I brought it up because I'm not actually sure. Like I've heard very I I understood it as a kind of something that might be composed in private and approached with privately, but then if it was publicly disclosed would be quite a scandal because it might be in higher classes, like you're talking about where kind of marriage arrangement might be more prevalent, that might be like disruptive to arrangements that are already in place, for instance, especially if some kind of lower class male, for instance, like composes a man song, like poetry type thing to a higher class lady. But I'm not entirely sure that's kind of what I was thinking originally. But um, that's why this type of poetry um in so many ways, like uh, all of it is built on layered meaning in different ways, so that mm. you're capable of delivering a message that will be understood in one way to one person and in another way in, uh, by another person. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the that's the gene the genius part of it. So, like for instance, you can compose. Uh, a love poem to um, this say say you are having an affair and say it's a situation like uh, you just described Sophie with uh, a lower status male uh, who is infatuated or having an affair with a, a higher status uh, female in uh, who is betrothed to some funky duke or whatever of western iceland um well they wouldn't be called dukes but um you know uh magnate i think we call them uh, nowadays um they then he would be able to compose 
a uh, intricate poem uh, to her that 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 she would be able to understand based perhaps on uh, references to their mutual experiences and uh, other things they have talked about in secret, which is a very common theme, talking uh, men and women talking in secret, right? And then uh, that would then uh, um, be a message that could be delivered to her uh, by, for instance, her servant or or something like that. Oh, this is getting even more bizarre because <laughs> I was just assuming you would you would just go and tell her face face, but things weren't getting written down either. I assume so. No. This was a case of he's he's made this poem, he's put his heart and soul into it. Then he's had to go and tell the servant and be like, "Look, don't laugh, but." <laughs> I need to tell her this. These exact words, don't mess it up. And then she has to, or the servant then has to go and tell her this 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 really romantic poem that might be might be a little bit rude or might not be. And <laughs> I think that's just hilarious. But I some things never change because we on, on our website we sell gift boxes and we allow you to make like a little put a little note in there. And I think people always forget that somebody has to write that little note. <laughs> And the amount of times that we've had to write like things like, oh, to my Ragnar, love from you know your shield maiden, and like we really weird, like well not weird, but like really like emotional kind of stuff. And mm. it, that's why it made me chuckle a little bit because it just reminded me of that, of this kind of there's just some things just don't ever change, like the things that you do for love. You should read Bosa Saga and then get inspired when you're writing uh, those little notes. <laughs> oh, I, I just write what they tell me to. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I thought you actually I, like, sometimes had to like write something yourself. <laughs> no, no, no. They they usually leave leave what they want, and it's usually something soppy, and it's very mostly like very Viking broy of that mm. kind of typical thing. But it just made me think of that, like how how embarrassing that must be to 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 have this poem and tell it to the servant and then send her off. And what if she gets it wrong? What if it's like, you know, that whispers game where she gets it all wrong and something comes out the other end. That's not actually what you said. Yeah. Then, then you fucked up, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, it's just a whole different world that I didn't even think of. But this is this is one of the reasons that uh, skaldic poetry, uh, especially the meter in skaldic poetry, is so intricate and and um, uh, and difficult because basically you it is designed to be memorable and uh, to be kept in memory. And if you mistake one word for another, then you might screw up the whole meter. That's the whole deal here. So, so that means that in principle, you should be able to remember it and not screw it up. And uh, that would be the situation then that we're um, also dealing with. This is why uh, so much skaldic poetry is used as historical sources by those people writing the sagas in the, in the 1200s. Because mm -hmm. they basically are laboring under the theory that, well, if skaldic poetry is composed correctly, then it is accurate knowledge, um, right. which sounds a little, perhaps a little strange when we're dealing with poetry. Um, but there is something perhaps to it because it would be able to be preserved intact without your memory screwing it up um, mm -hmm. through yeah. you know, several generations. 
I mean, also, if we're talking about like the awkwardness of like these romantic Chinese whispers situations, I mean, in other sagas, you've also got like really weird accounts, like in a, I don't know, like Nyal saga, is it um, Gunhild, when she is betrothed to Hrut or some, yeah, I think it's Hrut. Mm-hmm. And uh, he goes back to Iceland and is due to marry somebody else other than her who she expected to be married to. I think she manages to place some kind of crazy curse on him where he's unable to consummate his new marriage uh, out of out of pure spite. And uh, I think then the new lady might be like able to divorce him on account of him not being able to uh, perform consummation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, so you you wonder how much of that things stories like this perhaps are kind of like based off of um awkward situations that needed some kind of like superstitious uh solution <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. know if you know what i mean <laughs> but uh yeah so yeah no and that's the and um what's uh, what what the hell is that saga um the fox guy why am i blanking on it um but there's this this is one saga where it basically seems like a underlying theme of the saga is homosexuality and um and the person who is uh uh is sort of accused of that um is um damn it why am i forgetting the the, the name of that guy like <laughs> um but the interesting thing is that uh, there's a lot of like uh, curious poetry in in that saga as well, and uh, in one situation he ends up killing a guy um, by um, by 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 stabbing him um, and basically like um, a, st- stabbing him with a spear so that he's like stuck to a fence or something like that if I remember correctly, and then he goes to um, the king who's present in the town at the time and he basically declares that he has killed this person uh with a riddle and the interesting thing is that of uh, the king of course like immediately understands what he's saying and and that's always like the assumption that that uh, the the highest ranking people in society are edu- sort of educated to that level that they are capable of of like deciphering riddles like this um just like that, which you know, of course, mm-hmm. is sort of like you know, reference to Odin as as like the god that is uh, in in charge of all of this mm-hmm. um, and the source for it. Oh. So, last thing on on this, how how accurate? I know you said before they they would if if written down, they should be remembered correctly. But how accurate would the context? of them be if they were written down by or, or created by kings wanting to remember their their stories um oh dude it's all propaganda well that yeah that's what i mean so how how much can you like as a historian or a scholar look into it and, and look at it as being historical evidence or is it just kind of like you have to take it with a pinch of salt okay so this is this is where it gets really tricky. Um, of course, we know that the content of a poem um, 
like a scholarly poem about say Harold Feinherr's death that that of course you know gives us a, a, a information about his death and his life as well and some battles he was in and those things and um then we have to like uh, trust various auxiliary sources uh, in different ways uh, for you know details. Um, you know the way that they determine time uh, for people's life and such depends on who we're talking with at what time in uh, medieval history in medieval Iceland. So Adi Frodi, for instance, he writes Eastlanding a book. He tells us that Iceland was settled in the period from 870 to 930. And he uh, dates the beginning of the settlement of Iceland based off of uh, Harold Feinherr's reign. And uh, he uses um, the English royal lines as a uh, sort of like a backup for, for making sure that he's got the time right. He didn't. We realized like archaeological evidence shows that people were in Iceland already in the beginning of the 800s. So he got he got something wrong. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, up until a couple of years ago, when when archaeologists found uh, you know a settlement from the beginning of the 800s, that had had been the standard um, uh, explanation for when Iceland was settled: 870 to 930. Uh, because Adi Frodi said so, because he based it off of like the reign of Harold Feinherr. And that's, you know, that's basically uh, what we have to go on with a lot of this information, right? So if Snorri Sturluson tells us that Theodolver uh, uh, or Krini lived from this and that time uh, to that and that time and so on, um, then we have to like simply accept that. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot we can do to otherwise authenticate. Um, the existence of that person within that time frame. So, um, yeah. Because hmm. I feel like if I was a king, <laughs> I was uh, on my deathbed, I'd issue some people to write some really awesome stories about me, whether they were true or not. I'd be like, look, tell everybody that I did all this amazing stuff, killed yeah. at least like 10 dragons, uh -huh. um, a bunch of bears, and surely... That's what they must have done. Of course they did. <laughs> so, so how much of that like lives on today? That so much know? of it, so much history writing, especially in Scandinavia, is based off of like these random propaganda stories that kings came up with. Like that's literally what uh, you know any Norwegian hears uh, in like you know history in 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 elementary and middle school, right? That's that's like. Snorri Sturluson's random lies about Norwegian kings mm -hmm. <laughs> called Heimskringla. Um, we know that he is lying about so many things, especially about the early kings, but it's just accepted as like the story about mm -hmm. what happened back then. And that's the same thing for a lot of other things. Like one of my colleagues, old colleague, uh, just posted on Facebook the other day um, he's a medieval historian. He's like reading all kinds of chronicles and stuff. He just posted that he found an entry in the so-called Stada Chronicle um, that of uh, the Danish king Voldemar uh, the first also was crowned king of Sweden by Barbarossa 
of Germany. Um, uh, so yeah, and that's like the only source that I know of that professes that this guy was also king of Sweden. And I'm like wondering how the hell did that, you know, get in there? Because it's a big deal to say that this guy is also king of Sweden, right? Like that. That's like. <laughs> It's like there's got to be some Swede that was like, wait, what? <laughs> we can safely say J.K. Rowling probably read that one. <laughs> Maybe. It's, uh, I'm sure it sounded like you said Voldemort there. Voldemort. <laughs> Voldemort. <laughs> it's the Scandinavian version of Vladimir. Uh, <laughs> so when did you um? I I can't remember. Did you bring up Avinder, uh, Skald Spiller? The kind yeah. of one with the shitty name attached to him. Uh, did he not? Was he not the one who composed Halconamal, like the one, the kind of lay of Halcon, the king? Yeah. That that one is kind of a strange example to me because I think Halcon was this uh, Christian king who attempted to introduce. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but attempted to introduce Christianity and was kind of shunned away for this, and. Um, it's actually the other I way think... around, it looks like. <laughs> That's the interesting thing about him. Because it's Snurri Sturluson. I... It's Snurri who's saying that that Haukon, um, um, yeah. that he attempted to introduce Christianity, but then he it was like faced with all of this pushback on the evil earls of Mörre and all that stuff. And actually, mm-hmm. it kind of like all the other sources about Haukon are basically saying that he was like, yeah, sure, he was baptized in England, but then he came back to Norway and he was like, fuck Christianity. And then he just went with it. <laughs> well, ignore ignore everything I was just about to say then. Like, you can completely discount <laughs> everything that was about to follow because that poem was confusing to me in the yeah. context that I, in the context that I thought it was in before you literally just told me that fact. So... Yeah, that's fixed it all for me. Thank you. <laughs> well, there you go, right? <laughs> yeah, no. So Solid. This, this is this is really this is really interesting because that tells you a little bit about like the process of Christianization too in 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 Norway and and like the influences. It's not Sturluson if he is actually the one who has written Heimskringla because there's also you know a debate about that, but. I mean, it's really interesting to consider that he is representing all of this as like, oh, actually, you know, Christianity sort of like came to Norway much earlier, but uh, it was just because of like these pesky earls up here (laughs) who didn't want to submit to it, that it really didn't gain foothold. And then we had like this king who was like, this is a devout Christian and it's like, everything else we know about him seems to suggest that he was definitely not a devout Christian and he did not care. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Because in the, in the poem, it's um, for context, there's, there's confusing sections about like Halcon showing trepidation about entering Valhalla because Odin is acting very hostile to him. So he's kind of like, Oh, I don't feel welcome here. Like that's mm-hmm. the kind of vibe that the poem gives off. But then the fact that he is still, welcomed by the Valkyries and his time will always be thought of as good yeah so anyway all of my previous understanding of this has just been washed away anyway so like I'm completely happy with my new (laughs) my new learned knowledge about this but um I always found it pretty baffling that entire strange relationship and like yeah you know between religions so 
Thank you. Yeah. Fix that. Yeah. Well, much obliged. <laughs> there we go. There we go. We are. He gives us all those moments. Educators. Thank you. <laughs> so before we wrap up, uh, I'm not going to let you get off lightly without asking you about your old Instagram name. I said that I was I was going to. So your Instagram handle now is. Uh, well, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. No, go on, go on. You have to now if you're going to bring uh, up this subject. <laughs> dra- dra- I support it. <laughs> Drauskald, something like that. Drauskald. Yeah, that's not bad. That's fine. Yeah, Drauskald. I, I was playing this cool. I had it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> And your time. old Instagram handle used to be. I don't know what did it used to be. <laughs> uh, You're gonna yeah. have to say it. This was one that I looked at so many times to see if I was reading it wrong. I thought maybe I was maybe well, they would maybe it was meant to be split up into two words, and I was reading it this wrong. Caused, this caused confusion, so I can I can add a story after you uh, after you pronounce the name. I'll I'll add the. Okay. Story, so, yeah. so I always knew your Instagram handle <laughs> as Odin's Scrotum or Odin Scrotum. Um, and I always found it so bizarre. I wondered where the fuck that came from. Because you had it for quite a long time and you've got a lot of followers as well. So I was just like, why that? Like, uh, I mean, it's, it's a really disappointing answer because there's not really like a very exciting reason. I mean, I, I think right before I went to Norway on my degree about four or five years ago now um that's when I I kind of started that account it was like four or five years ago and for some reason I grew up with like lots of friends but none of them interested in Nordic mythology or any of this shit and like the kind of music scene or whatever so I kind of thought like oh yeah obviously there's academic interest but there's not really like an interest among my age group I was completely blind to it so before I went to Norway, I was like, I'll start an Instagram account and uh, share snippets of the Scandinavian studies lifestyle, like the essays and things like that, because I'm the only one doing it, completely naive. And then I sort of like began that account under Odin's scrotum, my, uh, or Odin's crotum, as some people thought it was, which led to a lot of weird confusion. Well, um, part of it I didn't know what Croton was. And I was like, <laughs> it wasn't what I thought it was. I was like, it can't be Odin's Croton. It has to be something else. And I, 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 I mean, I spent a good 10 minutes trying to figure it out. But maybe, maybe, maybe that's the only reason my name didn't get banned. It's the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I did mean a Croton. Like a lot of people maybe. message me thinking I'm in. And uh, yeah, I quickly realised I was a very small fish in a very large pond of people who actually were interested in this shit. And I was like, oh God, I'm not long. I'm no longer like the only person I know in the world who likes this stuff. But, you know, it was humbling in a good way. I've met friends for life through this, but I had no idea that other people like this stuff. It was just completely went over my head. And um, yeah, to answer your questions, I'm sort of dodging around it, aren't I? Um <laughs> <laughs> the the problem is is there's no reason I can't remember what the reason is like Odin scrotum I think I did mean it as scrotum it wasn't crotum um just to clear that up and I just thought it was fucking funny and I thought it might make me stand that's, out a little bit that's as good a reason as any was there alcohol involved that, <laughs> maybe a, a lot little bit. yes a little <laughs> bit a lot. 
<laughs> yeah, there usually is. I mean, I'm... Sean, it, it, it was the mead of poetry. There you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was divine inspiration of the mead of poetry. It compelled me. But um, I had plenty of people messaging me saying, never heard of a croton before what is it like is it a vi- is is it a viking weapon and um the, oh, I, wow. I, it, it was a really i stu- would have trolled really them stu- so hard no i did I, but i did a little bit and this turned into a really stupid ongoing joke so like i replied because my dad messaged me my dad found the account and he said odin scrotum so what is a croton <laughs> and i I, w- I was having some kind of stupid day and I said, oh, it's like, a, it's a weapon from the Vikings. It has two balls. And they were like, wow. It was like, it's like I mean, wow, like a, like a, he was like, like a morning star, like a mace morning star, but with two balls. So I was like, yeah, yeah, that's basically sure. what a crotum is. And um, I mean, I, you, that's your dad. You've got to. No, but I put that, I posted a screenshot of that on Instagram and people didn't get the sarcasm. And I had a lot of people genuinely inquiring about the crotum and then i had a blacksmith message me and offer to forge a oh. crotum and he photoshopped it I, it was i mean i've got it on my uh, instagram highlights if you want to watch the saga unfold because it's so stupid but it really made me laugh and um yeah well, did, so that <laughs> i feel like i would pay for a blacksmith to make a crotum <laughs> i don't want i don't i don't want to spoil anything but that might actually be happening I love it. And he can have spikes. He can have spikes <laughs> in the balls. There's little pubes. And this your exactly. one-eyed Odin. That's my one-eyed Odin. <laughs> wow. The one-eyed go. Odin and the crotum. Anything that's, uh, you know, sure, sure evidence. Then. I have no idea where this is, how we got here, what's happened, but I, I love it. I cut. I can't believe anybody believed that. <laughs> no, they did. And like my dad did. And then I thought everyone would laugh at my dad. And then everyone was just like my dad and thought the same. But there is there is a croton potentially in the works for the for the future. Watch this space. Oh, that's I all I'll say. So. I hope no, there is. So. There is. It might be a miniature version with quite small balls, <laughs> but um it's in the works. <laughs> so <laughs> hey, it's your invention. It can be as big as you want it to be. <laughs> on that note let's uh <laughs> let's wrap this one up you will uh, <laughs> you'll have to come back oh well with the croton flailing flailing yes. <laughs> okay all right we've had some uh <laughs> <laughs> oh, right i've got a little few tears in my eyes now I'm, I'm just happy it's not my fault this time. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think you set it up with the, uh, with the big dictionary, and then from there it just it seemed to just spiral downhill. <laughs> okay, so no, let's let's let's. Let, let, let's <laughs> I don't know why it's me so much. <laughs> Sorry, right. Okay. When the chrome is made, please come back and join us. And we will, will. will and we will speak about the media poetry, which we were meant to do today. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, sh- I'm sure we can make pretty much a full episode out of that, Mateus. You said there's plenty of different variations and and, and multiple dick metaphors in it too. So yeah. Well, I feel like a crotum in hand will be perfect for that. Perfect. I'll do it. It'll make it happen. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. We will 
we'll Absolutely. Book it. <laughs> we'll book it in. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, do you want to get... <laughs> okay. <laughs> when other people laugh, it makes me laugh as well. That's the problem. <laughs> we'll be balls deep in the poem. Oh, fucking yes. hell. Oh, my God. All right, let's wrap this I've said this about three times. Let's wrap this up. Um, do you let, let people know where they can find you? Obviously, they can yeah. um, get your book when that comes out. I know you said it's be, it'll be a few weeks before you release yeah. that. Uh, yeah, so like I'm uh, Draga Scout on Instagram, and uh, yeah, I think I keep pushing it back, but my first book should be out in three to four weeks' time, and it will be available on my Etsy and some other web shops, but I can't announce where they are yet. It's kind of a surprise, so oh, I'll be I... announcing it soon on my Instagram. Uh, Matthias, yeah. where can everybody find you? You can always <laughs> find me on Instagram. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Just type in my name <laughs> and I That's shall it. pop up. <laughs> there you go. Okay, I'll I'm gonna try and get through the rest without laughing. Okay, if you if you enjoyed the show, um silliness and all, please leave us a five-star rating, a positive review, preferably on iTunes. It helps people find the show, keeps us high up on the list, gets us in the charts, lets people find the show. If you um enjoy the show and want to get involved a little bit more, Patreon always helps us out. You can spawn on there from £5 up to £20. You get different things for each tier. Um, you get access to the bonus show that we do straight after this one every week, which is where me and Matthias sit down and watch an episode of Vikings and let you know our opinions, our thoughts on it. Oh, also... this, time, this time we're going to be watching, isn't that the temple at Uppsala? You're going to be hearing me like bitching so much about that. It's going to be great. Sorry. There we go. No, <laughs> so you see so you get to watch that. You also get to sit in on the uh the live shows we record, get to join in the uh the chat and uh the live chat feature, which is always good fun. It's always really funny. Uh you can follow us on Facebook at Nordic Mythology Podcast, the same on Instagram and our website is nordicmythologypodcast.com. And you can pick up some t-shirts, hopefully a Crotum t-shirt in the future. So yeah, no, there was this was fun. It descended into chaos in the end. But, <laughs> hey, that's, the that's brilliant. Chaos. <laughs> that's brilliant. 